All right, let's do this. How are you, what the fuckers? What the fuck, buddies? What the fuck, Nicks? What's happening? I'm Mark Marin. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. How's it going? Are you all right? You okay? I've been traveling. I just, I left Tulsa on uh, Tuesday morning, arrived in Pittsburgh. I'm going to be tonight. I'll be uh, just outside Pittsburgh at the Carnegie of Homestead, that haunted place. Then tomorrow on Friday, I'm in Cleveland, Ohio at the Mimi Ohio Theater. Then on Saturday, I'm in Royal Oak, Michigan at the Music Theater. Next week, Washington, D.C. at the Kennedy Center on May 20th. Red Bank, New Jersey at the Count Basie Center on May 21st. And Philadelphia at the Keswick Theater on May 22nd. I know you can go to wtfpod.com slash tour for information on these dates. I know that Detroit and Philly are, are getting tight. Let's talk about the world. I'm not, look, I understand I've been rambling on and aggravated and trying to stand firm in the face of a fascist momentum in this country. I know that a tremendous blow has been dealt to the women of this country uh, with this seemingly unavoidable overturning of Roe v. Wade. I get it to the degree that I can get it. I think it's fucking terrible. I don't really know what to do because it is a tremendously shameless and thorough authoritarian move, a, a Christian fascist move that makes it clear what this future will be. It becomes difficult and sad figuring out how to fight it. There's never been something as definitive in terms of where we're going as a country, in terms of the theocratic authoritarianism. I mean, it's happening. On top of that, the state I live in has no water and fires are coming. I know what's happening. I'm trying to to handle it. I don't know what to tell you. I don't know what my job is right now other than to, you know, comfort a dying patient. But but the Doobie Brothers are here today. (laughs) And the guy who's uh, the director of uh, of the Bob Dylan Center. These are nourishing things. The Bob Dylan Center was very mentally and, and soulfully nourishing in terms of just standing in the shadow of one of the greatest sort of literary and songwriting and musical artists of, of all time and trying to relate on some level because you want to feel like you're kind of like Bob Dylan, right? So getting to look at those notebooks, I'm like, I carry around notebooks and scribble in them too. I'm just like Bob Dylan. I got little notebooks. Maybe one day all my little notebooks will be open in a museum and everybody will look at them and go like, how did he even understand what he wrote? I could read Dylan's writing. I can't read mine. So I guess that makes me more expressive in some ways, more uh, challenging than Bob because I challenge myself to try to read what I've written on a post-it. But look, it's true. I am talking to Tom Johnston and Pat Simmons of the Doobie Brothers. They're two of the original, original members, both on guitar and vocals. And they've been with the band for its entire existence. They have a new memoir out called Long Train Running, Our Story of the Doobie Brothers. Uh, but before, as I said, we, I talked to the Doobies. I'm going to talk to Stephen Jenkins. But before that, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about Uh, reservation dogs and my experience on that set because i missed you know i canceled my dates at dynasty typewriter because i knew 
that if Sterling Harjo was going to ask me to do this show or cast me on this show, I would do anything to do it because I do think it is one of the best shows ever made for a lot of reasons. Primarily the reason that it is uh, you know, native owned and operated to a degree. Obviously, FX is the, is the network, but this is a native operation. And through this show, we see and feel the point of view, the way of life, the humor, the spirituality, the, uh, the, the cultural sort of influences and impact that come in and go out of the native community. And it's never been seen like this before. This is a completely groundbreaking affair. And I, I was thrilled to be part of it. And to be on the set was great. Because it was totally collaborative, completely diverse, and, and interesting. It was, you know, I'm in Oklahoma with a bunch of native people, you know, getting that point of view and being part of executing those stories. And I was thrilled. And I just wanted to give some props to the people that were involved, obviously Sterling Harjo, but uh, the writer Bobby Wilson of the episode I was on, uh, which was great. Stay gold, cheesy boy. That's the name of the episode. Stay gold, cheesy boy by Bobby Wilson. So he was around and he was, you know, it was uh, fun talking to that guy and working with that guy because we were doing a lot of improvising. And the, um, the, the director, Black Horse Low was also very open to improvising, as was uh, Sterling. And the other actors were great. I was working with a bunch of kids. I play the guy who runs sort of a recovery halfway house for these kids. And Cheese, played by Lane Factor, has been put in there. And I'm the guy running the place. And the other, the other kids were great, too. Rinaldo Pinella was, uh, played this guy, Julio. Travis Thompson played Tino. He's a rapper from Seattle, native guy. Cameron Alexander played uh, James. A.J. Volton played Jedthro. Uh, and those were the kids I worked with. I always wonder, like, what, what am I supposed to be doing? What is this character? But then when I get there, I'm like, well, he's going to be me. And then when we were just riffing this guy, who's this kind of quirky, you know, it wasn't really written for me, per se. It was written sort of more as a kind of Marines, you know, drill sergeant kind of guy. But I just played him as this kind of, you know, weirdo who had this life experience, this cranky weirdo. And, uh, and we were just improvising our balls off, you know, and it, they would encourage it, which is rare and fun. And I tell you, no matter how, how good the episode comes out or when anybody thinks of the episode itself, the experience of making these guys, especially the director, especially uh black horse low, I had him laughing so hard. I'm like, my job is done. I don't even care how this thing comes out. They, this guy is laughing so hard. It is so fucking beautiful that I'm like, that, that's enough for me. They could do whatever they want with this thing. We got some laughs going, man. It was just a great time. Tulsa was really, as I said before, I saw all those concerts and stuff and the Bob Dylan Center. Oh, and the, uh, the real surprise for me, which I didn't know if it was going to happen or not because I'm a big fan of his, is um, I got to work with Zahn McLaren who plays Big, the cop on Reservation Dogs. He's also been in a couple other Sterling Harjo movies. You know him from Westworld and some other stuff. He's a very definitive person, a one-of-a-kind dude. And I didn't know if I was going to get to work with him, but not only did I get to work with him, but we hung out for quite a bit uh, on the set and talked about stuff, about uh, you know sober life stuff, 
being of a certain age and whatnot. I I hope I can get him into the uh, into the garage back in Glendale. I think we're going to make it happen. We talked about it, but uh, that was just another um, great uh, you know part of doing reservation dogs. We getting to hang out with that guy and kind of get to know him. So um, I hope we get to talk. But he's uh, he's funny and amazing, great actor. But so the Dylan, the Bob Dylan Center all sort of fell into weird place for me. You know, I, I got wind of it through Peter Shore, who hooked me up with Jesse Dylan, who hooked me up with Bob Dylan's guy, Larry Jenkins, who then hooked me up with his brother, Stephen, who is the who was the director of the place. And I went in and I looked at it and I had a great it's a completely immersive experience. There's a lot of amazing bits of ephemera, is that what you call it? Artifacts, manuscripts, notebooks, the original tambourine, uh that the uh Hey, Mr. Tambourine Man was based on artifacts from his wallet, Johnny Cash's phone number, three little spiral notebooks that he was doodling and writing the lyrics to uh, Blood on the Tracks. I mean, it's all there. Just, you know, recordings of things that have never been heard before. And look, it's Bob Dylan. And Stephen, as you'll hear uh, when I talked to him, said there's like 100,000 things that they have. The Woody Guthrie Center is right next door. It's in the same building. And Kane's Ballroom, Tulsa is its own thing, and it was pretty great. And the Bob Dylan Center, I just lucked out on at, on being there. So I talked, I just had to jump at the opportunity to talk to Stephen Jenkins, the uh, director of the Bob Dylan Center in Tulsa. Just had its grand opening on Tuesday. And you can go to BobDylanCenter.com for info if you want to visit it. And this is me talking to uh, Stephen Jenkins. <laughs> So I, there's some questions I have, you know, leading up to uh, to talking about the archive, like the Kaiser family. Like I, I know, like because I think um, Tim Blake Nelson is related to the Kaiser family. He could be. I know. I know he's got Tolson roots. Oh no, he's from here. Yeah, you know? I was doing and, a lot. Of, it's a real motley crew of folks who. It's have, interesting because he's yeah. of like the there was a, a there was he's from a Jewish family. He's a Jewish guy, and there was a movement of like you know after I think after the Holocaust they spread out. A lot of Jews came from Europe, and they were like. Uh, yeah, we got to get you spread out because we yes. can't let that happen again. <laughs> yes, right. So like they ended scatter. up scatter. Yeah, can't, we can't. You can't get all of us if but we Ka- do that. But the Kaiser family is an oil family, and they're just a uh, uh, they're old school Oklahoma. It's yet yeah, very true. George Kaiser, who I finally have the pleasure of meeting. I hadn't been able to do so through the whole months months long interview process, but I met him at our opening night dinner just the other night. You know, I, I've been getting to know very well uh, the executive director there at the George sure. Kaiser Foundation, uh, just a mensch of a guy. Yeah. Named Ken Levitt and all these other folks. But George, to his, you know, uh, deserves all credit as uh, what I'm gathering a couple months in. He's really sort of the patron saint of the city. Yeah. You know, I've jumped into uh, Ubers and the driver first thing says, you know, are you new to Tulsa? Hey, have you heard about George Kaiser? I mean, this is a guy, there's so much civic pride here. And what he's been able to do for the city, first investing in early childhood education with an eye on, you know, equity across every line here uh, and then doing a lot of civic enhancement. So we've got this beautiful park, 64 acres right along the Arkansas River. Is that the gathering place? That's the gathering place, a really, really lovely spot. Bike trails all through the city. You know, it's very outdoorsy. Uh, And then there's a a rich arts and culture uh, ecosystem here and the Dillon Center will be a part of that. Yeah, I was at the Canes Ballroom three nights in a row and I just, it was unbelievable. Yeah, that's a storied space. You can feel the history there. Oh no, you definitely can. Yeah. So when, so he, 
did he also buy the the Guthrie archive? It, so Kaiser acquired the Guthrie archives, and uh, the Guthrie Center opened in 2013. Yeah, uh, and has done very well. You know, with a whole range of programming, looking at Guthrie's life and work. Yeah, really with an eye towards sort of the social conscience, social justice aspect of what Guthrie has stood for. And if I can make a, a, a sort of a contrast, uh, the the Dillon Center, which we're just about to open to the public. Uh, is focused more on that kind of unfettered creativity. Yeah, I like the way that was framed in the thing. I, it really is uh, compelling to me, the idea of restless uh, creativity. Like, I never really thought of him like that, but because that's sort of, that's a great current to, to kind of uh, label it. Yeah, it, it, it struck a chord, and as we were... Who came up with that? Uh, you know, digging through the archives, and the archival materials themselves were suggesting narratives and suggesting context. And because we had the Guthrie Center here, and we had established the strong focus on, again, the social justice component yeah. of what an artist who's committed with three chords and the truth can do, yeah. Dylan, of course, who does the same to this day, even, you know, 60 years on from the, the, the folk heyday, um, we thought, wouldn't it be fun to really, really highlight the creative instinct and the creative impulse and the process? Uh, and, and when we found that we had, say, 40 pages of lyrics for the song Dignity, yeah. uh, you know, rewriting, revising, doodles in the, in the you know, uh, margins of the manuscript pages. Uh, when you see uh, 10 plus versions of different stanzas from Joker Man yeah. that you can now, in a sense, scroll through using interactive elements, it, 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 it tapped into this idea that Dylan, who, you know, we all, the royal we, tend to think of as this hallowed genius yeah. who somehow operates in this lofty realm where these songs spring fully formed and perfect. Yeah. Well, it's heartening to see that even someone of this caliber who, let's face it, stands alone, is is it caught in the grip of a song that he can't get right? Oh, yeah. It's like a, a math equation. Like it just becomes, uh, you know, the poetry of it. Yeah, it was, it's fascinating because, of course... Of course, he's like puts that much work. In. Yes, but somehow, um, despite say the bootleg series yeah, where yeah. we've now over the years heard earlier versions of songs, yeah. seeing the handwritten lyrics and the crossed out, you know, X's across a typewritten line. So many pages. So many pages. So many lines. Things that look brilliant, but obviously did you know didn't pass muster for yeah, him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so uh, through all these these interactive ways, I think visitors are going to be able to pour through materials. And, and get a sense of, of the application of craft and, and of getting the word right, getting the phrase right. But it, it's a, has he come here? He has not. Um, so, you know, here's, here's what we know. Bob Dylan was very, very happy for his archives to be acquired yeah. by, again, the um, Kaiser Foundation and to find their permanent home yeah. here in Tulsa. Next to Woody. Next to Woody, okay. so that had to figure in, knowing yeah. everything that we know about the the you know the, sure. the debt he's paid in a way to Woody, especially yeah. in the in the early years. Um, there was sort of a handing over a mantle from the elder statesman sure. to sure. the the new coffee house kid, yeah. um, and of course, then he went on to explore so many other different musical idioms. But there's there's definitely a through line there. Yeah. I think as well, by all accounts, Dylan responded very positively just to the vibe of the city. Yeah. He liked the folks he was meeting. He also acknowledged that... So he was around. He was he, was, he came to the Guthrie Center at one point. He had entered into conversations yeah. with the decision makers around all of this. He responded... 
responded very positively. We have a wonderful museum here with a very historically important collection called the Gilcrease. Mm. And the Gilcrease is strong in documents of Americana. The Emancipation Proclamation is right here in Tulsa. Who wow. knew? Yeah. As is a, a copy of the Declaration of Independence. Uh-huh. And very strong in Native American art and mm. culture. And of course, we're on Native American land. And Dylan felt that um, the city as a whole was recognizing that lineage properly, and it resonated with him. Yeah. And so once the deal was done, and uh, Dylan did agree to make the towering gate yeah. that uh, greets visitors when they walk in. I had no in. idea that he was a, an ironwork artist. He, he toils away in his studio on this metalwork, and it's it's fantastic. So he made it specifically for this He place. did. It's site-specific. So that was... I was just looking at it a few minutes ago. Yeah, it's a pretty fascinating yeah. piece. I mean, we could go into a whole thing on what that it's might just, represent. It's salvage uh, pieces and bits of metal, of iron stuff that he welds together into yes, a and frame. Yes, t- into this wonderful abstract yeah. form. I happen to think it references American industry, sure. and you can see maybe the dying out of tradition there. Yeah, and you can also, also see I, a, 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 a an honoring of of you know of of hand. Yeah, and also with his childhood, apparently that that Minnesota was a big iron mine place. Yes, but walking through the museum, it's very manageable. So like it, it it's overwhelming to a degree, but it's still that 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 primary space, which I imagine is going to stay relatively permanent, right? Some will, but there will be a lot of switching in and out of material because Upstairs after all, there's both and both floors it, on both floors. The the chronology that Sean Wilentz, uh, you know, the the brilliant Dylan scholar, yeah. and essayist, and historian, has put together for us uh, that separates uh, key moments in Dylan's life out into nine eras. Right. And you can read it as a chronology, but you can also go backwards to forwards, or you can jump into the middle. That, I think, provides a good framework for, uh, you know, the, the the eras and the decades. And, of course, we'll add to that, because, don't forget, this is an archive and a center devoted to a living artist. Right. Who will always be outrunning us, and we will forever be chasing after him. Well, how much do you have? I mean, because, I mean, how much stuff is there? All in between physical objects and pieces that have been digitized, particularly the recordings that yeah. we've broken out into individual tracks, also known as stems. We're talking about give or take a hundred thousand items. That's crazy, and yes. the, I, and obviously that not all that's on the bootleg series. No, correct. <laughs> There's much more here. Uh, you know, it, it, it again. It's the notebooks that he kept. I know um, all the notebooks. Pocket, are, uh, pocket, those little, sketch pads, the little spiral. Yes. A little spiral notebook, because now you got these moleskin books. But back then, it was those little spiral. Absolutely. Picked yeah. up at a hardware, you know, a drugstore, a corner store. Like three or four of just, uh, you know, all the uh, Tangled Up and Blue sketches. Yes. Or Blood on the Track stuff. Yes, that's pivotal. This is sort of the holy grail, I think, for the hardcore is Dylanologists. It? Is it? There had been whispered rumors all these years. Dylan kept these small notebooks and he was working and reworking and revising and crossing out, you know, that suite of songs that, yeah. that became Blood on the Tracks. They're Would known he... as the Blood Notebooks. Oh, wow. Really? Yes. Well, sure enough, once we got the archives, we found the two other notebooks. Which, but who had, where were these in, a, like a house in Minnesota? At the, the farm or what? A, a desk drawer, a, a cardboard box. Dylan, for all his espousal of Don't Look Back, did think enough to keep this stuff, which I find an interesting paradox. But where was most he, of it? He, he was keeping it, and occasionally he'd hand it over to, you know, his manager and folks in the yeah. office to say, yeah, I suppose, I'm paraphrasing badly, I don't mean to put words in his mouth, we should do something with this at some point. And the time came in 2016 to find a home for all this material. And, it and was here we are in Tulsa. Spread out over, like, I mean, I know he had that farm up in Minnesota, and then there's a house in L.A., and, and there's an apartment in New York. It was just everywhere. 
everywhere? It was everywhere. It was collecting uh, wow. and, and stacking up. And occasionally, you know, shipments of things would, would sort of arrive in the New York office. But and, jackets and outfits, like, you know, harmonica uh, yeah. holders. Like, it's crazy. The tambourine from... The tam the tambourine man song. Yep. How did Bruce how do you Langhorn's tambourine held together with a band aid? Uh -huh. And of course, you know we retain all of that. That's the beauty of the historical you find object. That, that is in the archive. All of this came to us, and it was just this really unprecedented trove. I must say, for you, like when you got the gig, um, you know, what was the the most exciting? thing that you, you, I, you know i'm still discovering the treasures and, and i hope to be surprised daily as yeah, i think our visitors sure. will be as they come in but you know seeing a letter handwritten from johnny cash to bob filled yeah, with yeah. all this wordplay and puns yeah. and you get a sense of the friendship that they had the mutual respect yeah um, and there's a reverence there and yeah. and there are aspects uh, of the archive that show a kind of whether they're from Dylan himself or from his compatriots and friends yeah. you know this this is a guy who we do take seriously and 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 we treat with the utmost respect but there's a lot of irreverence and wit in there and well, I think hilarious. sometimes we forget that but you know this is the shapeshifter this is the jokester yeah. is he the joker man of which he speaks yeah. you know that's a whole other conversation but all the, even the stuff that his phone numbers in his wallet Otis Redding's business card that's yeah. crazy that that stuff is still around it's here it was in his wallet in his back pocket the letter he wrote to Hendrix about uh, all along oh, the watchtower it's beautiful he said you know it's hard enough to see into one's own soul I feel that with your version of all along the watchtower you've actually seen into mine this is typed in one long paragraph yeah. on a kind of onion skin piece of paper it's so great to see I, can't, um, I just don't like why, where was this stuff I just it, 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 somebody I don't know it's very interesting well me. either Dylan himself was keeping things that yeah. you know he was in receipt of for example get well cards after his motorcycle accident right you know we we might keep our own get well cards but they're probably not from the harrison family and the mccartney family yeah, right. so we have that stuff you know fan mail by the volume by the bag an incredibly moving letter that a soldier wrote when he was in vietnam mm. telling bob if i can use a uh, first name in this uh, context bob i heard your songs on the radio i'm out here in hell in vietnam i just want to get back home and touch my family and you know you're you're helping me because i'm hearing these songs on the radio there's so many of those sorts of reminders of the very personal connection that you know all of us have to yeah. one degree or another to this this the, body of work but to the man behind it too yeah to what we know but it, what, what's also just like striking me now is that through all these different phases even periods where you know he kind of fell out of like you know what's going on with bob Dylan. yes the born again years well yeah but those yes. were good records but Certainly. i mean but there were periods where you know his relevance was sort of diminishing in a mm -hmm. way mm-hmm but the through line, no matter what he's presenting on stage, whether he's wearing this white face makeup for the Rolling Thunder or he's Christian or whatever, is it's it's just that writing. It's always the songs. Yes, you know, like because you when you watch the some of the concert footage of what was clearly a a, a Christian performance. Yes, you, you know he's not doing anything other than being Bob Dylan, but it's just the context changes. But he there's something that remains constant. So when people are always asking like, who, "What's he's so elusive? Who is this guy?" It it's all right there. It really is. Yet <laughs> yet we keep asking for more, you know. And the the guy gives and gives and yeah. gives. Yet there's something about again. There's this elusive nature at the core, and and this center 
is, you know, our intention is not to say, look, we finally got a hold of the stuff. We have 100,000 items here. But you and did. if we just look hard enough. Yeah. Yes, but we have it. But we're not trying to say, hey, Bob, we got you figured out. We right. got your number. First of all, what's the fun in that? Who yeah. wants to reduce the man who contains multitudes to some easy, simple answer? Well, and also something he's really put a boundary up to being. He's, he's, that's the one thing that he's been able to do is you know, not be reduced culturally. I mean, people exactly. make fun of his voice or they can parody his song. It's but all surface. It, sure, it, because yeah. and it doesn't even stick. When no. you, like, that's the great thing about the interactive element, which you did very effectively with the little uh, uh, iPods or whatever. Yes, uh, and, the audio you know, guides. Right, and, but they're, they're audio guides, but they're really just most of it's songs. Yep. You know, there's some interviews, but they're just songs, and they kind of put you in the place of it. That's that's the intention, and, you know, to, to if we can set you in Greenwich Village in 1963 for a moment. Yeah. If you feel like you're a little closer to being on stage during the Rolling Thunder Review Tour. Um, if you can, you know, step into his shoes, if you will, uh, looking at the uniform, the costume that he wore in the film Masked and Anonymous, yeah, 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 which yeah. is a great little hidden gem that not a lot of people have seen. Uh, you know, we, we have this stuff, but it's more than memorabilia. It has to be. Otherwise, we're the Hard Rock Cafe. And no knock on that. That's yeah. a fun experience. Yeah. I want to see little Stevie's guitar. Like, sure. That's great. But you kind of <laughs> yeah. move on and you go get your French fries. Yeah. Here, it's, it's, it's storytelling, it's narrative, it's context, and it's what you as a visitor bring to the experience. You know, it, Your again, emotional connection. Absolutely. If we're doing our job well, we're presenting the information and the materials in a way that's both rigorously researched, yeah. as any archive and center must be but also accessible and open-ended and and what how did you like i i'd read something about that there might be controversy about the the what six songs that were selected as as these songs of these eras that that there's going to be pushback like and i keep i keep picturing this sort of weird community of dylan nerds yes. that are has there been um i i love those dylan nerds and i i am one thank you very much uh listen bring it on good natured debate you know why the man in me you know why not lay lady lay we're, we're talking about the six songs that we go very at deep set. into at the center of the columbia records yeah. gallery where you have these quadrants you can walk around and you get all this information and material around the writing of the song yeah then the the recording and producing of it the performances of the song the way dylan changes and rearranges so often on stage throughout the years and then what's fun too is you look at and can consider how the song have second, third, fourth lives. Yeah. Let's talk about the man in me for a moment. You know, what would have maybe been thought of as a deep cut from New Morning, just a, a lovely kind of Sunday morning afternoon, as sure. the, as the uh, album title suggests, um, with the man in me. And T-Bone Burnett then plucked that out and put it on the soundtrack to The Big Lebowski. Right. And it sort of took on a whole different life. It found a different audience. Huh. You know, so we have a film clip from The Big Lebowski, and there's the dude, yeah. and he's abiding, and yeah. it's, you know, the great Jeff Bridges. Yeah. And, he, and you can sort of think about, well, how does the song change in that context? Yeah. And maybe if you, if you skipped New Morning in the early 70s, you'll go back to that one. Um, so, yes, we have these six songs. If you don't like those six, first of all, something's wrong with you, but, yeah. but you know, 
know, come back in a few months and we'll have new exhibition displays for six different songs. Oh, is that how you can do it? Absolutely. So there's such an embarrassment of riches here. Yeah. We can come up with, you know, another six. And upstairs you had the paintings, some paintings we've and got, uh, photographs. We've got Dylan's and... oldest uh, known oil painting from 1968. Yeah. You know, and in the ensuing years he's become a, a really, he applies himself quite seriously to painting these wonderful landscapes. We have a suite of pastels uh, that he's done yeah. uh, in 2012 that I think will really take people by surprise. Sure. There's a cinema in which uh, oh, yeah, we're starting with footage. a 45-minute yeah. program of Dylan videos and films. So now, do you have appointments on the books of scholars that want to come? Absolutely. And even before the center proper um, opened, you know, since we've had the materials in Tulsa, yeah. uh, they've been in an archival space over near this Gilcrease Museum, which I mentioned earlier. And we've already seen a couple books uh, and dissertations and studies and oh, essays really? come out of the materials. And yes, uh, uh, academics and scholars are lining up for the opportunity to come in. You need to be accredited. We have a vetting process. But of course, we want to make this as accessible to folks as possible. We don't want to keep uh, precious objects in, you know, in locked boxes. Yeah. The idea is to make this material available. And that happens in 15,000 square feet of public exhibition space, and it'll happen in a quieter library-like setting for yeah. scholars. Okay. Well, thank you for talking. It was great. And, I, and Mark, I, it's my pleasure. And also, like, what do you think that is going to happen in this city? How do you, like, because it seems like as, uh, you know, the West Coast burns and runs out of water, that... <laughs> That, that a lot of these um, sort of like cities within these states are going to have this influx. I think we're about to have a boom. I really do. I, I, I would love to think that the Dillon Center will play a role in that. Sure. I have to think this will help put Tulsa on the map in a different way. And folks will come here, and I really hope they stick around because there's a lot else going on here. Well, it's beautiful There's an here, artist too. fellowship program that's bringing in, you know, really cutting-edge folks from all around the country. Uh, there's a program called Tulsa Remote, where if you are a digital nomad yeah. and can work from anywhere, come yeah. out here, guess what? You get a $10,000 payment right. Right. to come and essentially bring your intellectual capital to the city. We, we've got it going. Come to Tulsa. There you go. Big promotion for Tulsa. Thanks a lot, Stephen. All right. Thank you. There you go. That guy is on it wow he's just like rolling that dude steven jenkins bob dylancenter.com is where you can go for information uh i i think that's the lowdown he did make it clear to me after the interview because i didn't seem to ask him but it must have stuck in his head that he didn't get the job through knowing uh, his brother who's been working for bob dylan for 30 years it was he got it on the level he wanted he wanted me to know that I believe him. Seems like a very on top of it fellow, that guy. Uh, so now I got an opportunity to talk to the Doobie Brothers. I thought every fucking Doobie Brothers songs. I remember singing Black Water in the miniature school bus that I used to take to fifth grade, Manzano Day School, and we would just sit there with the radio on and all the kids singing Black Water. I remember that. China Grove. Come on. Jesus is just all right. Minute by minute. Uh, there's a lot of hits. And I thought, like, sure, man, I'll talk to the doobies. Oh, what a fool believes. Listen to the music. Lawn train running. Uh, taking it to the streets. It keeps you running. You know these songs, don't you? You know, you get it, man. You get it. The Doobie Brothers. So I, I thought, like, yeah, I'll talk to um, Pat and Tom. 
Pat Simmons, Tom Johnson. The memoir is called Long Train Running, Our Story of the Doobie Brothers. It's available wherever you get books. And uh, I got to text with uh, Tom a bit because he left his Harley jean jacket, his Harley Davidson jean jacket at my house. So we're kind of texting buddies now. And he uh, he had great things to say about uh, about sort of trust. He loves the movie, the Lynn Shelton film uh, that I, uh, the last Lynn Shelton film that I, I, I acted in. But he's a big fan of that. But here they are, the Doobie Brothers, Pat and Tom. Which one's Tom? You're Tom. You're Pat. Yep. It's weird because like I know you guys. I know your faces. I've known you. I feel like I've known you my whole life. <laughs> <laughs> I do. Well, I was trying to. I was trying to figure out when. When did Blackwater come out? What year? Seventy-five. Seventy-five. Right? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. Because I remember like being in a little school bus singing it with a bunch of other kids. <laughs> that was. <laughs> I do like because yeah. I grew up in New Mexico, but I, I guess anywhere you grow up, the Doobie Brothers songs were just everywhere china grove was yeah. everywhere Blackwater was everywhere it's, it's crazy because like when they asked me like you want to you want you want to talk to these guys i'm like i guess i better and i'd say they sing <laughs> <laughs> quick before they're gone <laughs> i mean they're like i can name like every one of their hits i can sing most of them which is crazy because you know I, they're just in there man they're in there but uh so what made you what made you finally uh you know do the book who talked you into that uh, a guy named Chris yeah. <laughs> talked us into doing that. What was the deal? He just said, uh, you guys, you got to have a story. I met Chris. He knows it much better than I do. Well, yeah. I met Chris. He, he was uh, and, and still does write for the Huffington Post. Yeah. I do these occasionally uh, motorcycle events, antique motorcycle events, uh-huh. where we ride cross country yeah. on, on early motorcycles. And that year it was uh, 19... 16 and earlier motorcycles and is that your hobby riding old motorcycles uh you know kind of the the old motorcycles have been a hobby and the riding has been something the riding has been uh you know something more recent oh yeah past 10 10 years oh that's something you want to pick up when you're older (laughs) (laughs) along with a bike when it goes down yeah well you know they don't go that fast yeah oh really it's it's it, you know, it's like being on a carnival ride. Oh, for it's not hours like and hours. You're not doing motocross. No, no. Yeah, uh, but you know, it's a it's a competition. You uh-huh. know? But anyhow, uh, so he came out to to do a little inter- interview um, about that, and then we were soon after that we were doing a gig in uh, San Diego. Yeah, know, four or five years ago, maybe. Yeah, and then uh, he came to a gig. He lives in San Diego, so he yeah. came to a gig, and I was sitting around talking with him. He says, "Have you guys ever done a bio- biography? Yeah, yeah, has, yeah, any- yeah. has anybody ever written a book?" And I go, "I don't think so, uh, but <laughs> I think there know. was something years ago. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah. But it was junky, you know. Right. And so uh, now he said, "Well, you, you know, you guys should do something, right? And so he kind of came up with this idea. Why don't you and Tommy?" write a book together because you guys started the band and uh, it would be interesting to have it from your perspective because you've been there all these years and kind of started it and here you are still doing it. It's crazy, and man. And so he said, that I can crazy. help. He's, d- he's done, he had just done a book with- uh, <laughs> We're doing it. With John, John Oates. 
Sure. And uh, so, what happened to Hall? He wasn't. He didn't want to be part of it. Uh, I don't God, know. He I have did. No he, idea. he became friends with John, and so it was from. It was John's it's, take on. It's things, always you know. interesting to me to to, to like. You know, I've never talked to anybody in a band that there weren't fucking problems. <laughs> like, that's part of the deal i yeah. think you know well yeah i mean like sometimes i can't understand it you know because sometimes like you hear about guys they break up right after they do their big record and it's like what the fuck happened but i mean look man i guess if they're annoying they're annoying <laughs> it's like, i don't know you guys okay yeah we're fine yeah yeah. Uh, you know, it, 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 human relationships are complicated. <laughs> yeah, they are. It's kind of like a big family. I mean, yeah. sometimes you go at it, sometimes you don't. Sometimes, and most, you know, on the stage, everything just works. So that's yeah. that's the part that matters. Well, yeah, I guess at this at this point, like, I, I don't know how many guys were, like, where did it start originally? How many guys were in the original band? Every album cover, I always remember, they're like, how many are there? They're, they're 12, 9, 6? <laughs> Depends on what year it is. I know, I know but like at the we beginning. We started out with... Originally four. I mean, the actual Dewey Brothers band. Really? But, yeah, there was a band that fed into that. Pat was in a different band. and Where was this? I, this is in San Jose. The whole thing started in San Jose. San Jose. Is that where you grew up? I, I did. Mm -hmm. Really? Mm -hmm. I did. I grew up in the valley in Visalia. Right here? A little north of Bakersfield. Oh, really? So yeah. that's like... Uh, Great place to be from. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, because I guess some, everyone says what I just said. Where? Yeah. Wait. Well, I don't mind that. That's okay. <laughs> But Bakersfield, there's some music going on in Bakersfield, right? There used to be country. I guess I don't know what's going on in the valley these days. I don't. Keep but like, up. who was so like when you guys? So you moved to the Bay Area? I did. I went to college up San Jose State. So how do you guys meet? Well, we were in that music scene that was around the area, which was actually pretty Play, active. Playing, what, playing. playing a club with different. Uh, he was in a band. I was in playing with other guys. What year was this? Sixty nine. Sixty nine. So this is like it's all. Yeah, happened. we're not. 30. <laughs> I know that. But I mean, this is like, you know, but that's like the peak of it, right? It's crazy, right? With music it was jumping. That. It was. It was very active. Who were the people that were around when you were there in San Jose? Were there people that we would know now that evolved uh, out Maybe not in San Jose so much. Most of them were in San Francisco, as you said. But and um, When you guys put the band together, is that who? Were, how'd you find the other guys? Well, John Hartman and I started a band together in San Jose. He came out from... Um, from Washington, D.C., uh -huh. came out with a bass player, a friend of his, and he wanted to meet Skip Spence. A lot of uh -huh. things kind of revolved around the whole Moby, Moby Grape, Grape scene, trip. and I knew Skip at the time. You did? And, yeah, I was hanging around and with Skip him a little bit. And Skip introduced us. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So you guys knew the Moby Grape guys? Yeah. Yeah. Because Skip, like, that that album, Or, has been mm. reissued, and I, ha I have it, and it's like, uh, it's almost disturbing. <laughs> Well, it, I'm not going to get deep about was, this. He was. he was a little uh, out there himself. But yeah, what was the story with that guy? Because you listen to that record, and it's got its own time zone. It's like, and I thought initially, is like, is he strung out? But I think, like, there, he's just, he was just a little mental, right? I, he was diagnosed schizophrenic, but they didn't get around to diagnosing it until much later. We all had fun and did whatever, and then they decided to diagnose it. <laughs> I, I think Skip, you know, uh, it wasn't a good time to be, for his condition. You know, sure. he was doing substance yeah, abuse and sure. so on and I, I think that really triggered him into a worse state than he might have normally right well that happened with a few guys like you know mm -hmm. i think uh, peter green was like that from fleetwood yeah. mac like but i i don't know you know you fucking with acid and <laughs> it could have happened to any of us you know yeah I mean, so okay so skip and you at that time moby grapes pretty big they're a big act when you start they'd already happened actually to be honest with you we were talking 60 they were big for like you talked about a band, they put out their big album, and psh, right. that was what they were. Kind of. I mean, they put out years. another album after that, and I liked it, but they didn't last very long, and then 
if you read about them anywhere, you can see why. Yeah, know? yeah. I, I think that first album came out somewhere around 66, 67. Yeah. It's a good record. And then there's the two covers, the one with him flipping people off and the one with him not. Right. Like, that was all down in San Rafael, right down on 4th Street. Yeah. It was? Yeah. That's crazy. So, all right. So, you guys, the bass player, from he comes out from D.C.? The drummer. No, that the was the drummer, a drummer uh, John Hartman. He came out with a friend of his oh, as a okay. bass player, what and they guy? ended up living in the house on 12th Street, which is where everything kind of happened. Happened, but he and I started a band, which was well, the three of us, excuse me, started yeah. a band that was alternately metal, well, not metal, heavy rock, excuse me, yeah, and and R and B with a horn section, or the next night it might have chick singers, and it'll be, we kind of just Mixed were all over up? the map, yeah, we we're all over the map, and we we're just playing wherever we could find a place to put something down and you know play yeah, it, yeah, yeah, sure, and then we played a gig with the Skip, yeah, um, a couple of guys that he was going to play a gig with. Uh, canceled on him or whatever. Yeah, and he got John and I to come in and take their place, and uh, we played at a place called I guess the Gaslight Theater. Is that right? Yeah, the Gaslighter Theater. It was a, actually the old Campbell <clears throat> movie theater in uh, Campbell. You're, really? You're just you and know Pat a, was on the bill. A suburb of, and that's uh, how you met him. Yeah, and so and you just quit your band. No, uh, we just kind of got to be friends and hung yeah. out, and I used to go over and jam with the guys. Tom, how and old John were you guys? And, not very. <laughs> yeah. 21, 22. Yeah, about that. Like that. And what, when did you start, when does it start to uh, to gel? Like, when do you, because, I mean, there's so much competition. Did you think of it that way? I Man? don't think anybody, no. no. It was just, we were having fun doing it. It was, yeah. it was a great thing to be doing. And, but we mostly all, covers, right? Not really. We wrote a lot of songs. Yeah. Early on? Early on, we started writing songs. Yeah, we just, it just seemed to... Like many things in this band, it just happened. Yeah. There's no rhyme or reason. It's just whatever was going to happen did. And we did some covers, but a lot of uh, <clears throat> our material was, uh, you know, self penned. And then we just extend the songs yeah. to fill the time that we needed to fill. Sure. Sure. And a lot you, of solos. Yeah. A lot of jamming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of that. And did you, uh, were people coming around? Did they take to you? After a while, I mean, not right off the bat, we were playing, I can remember some of the illustrious places, we played like golf courses, and, you know, good you stuff. Know, it, but we ended up at the Chateau, and that's when things started to pop. When we played uh, ve venues where it, it was a music venue that people came to hear music, then we then it was always a very good response. But, you know, we played, you know, stuff where we were just, you know, Sure, pizza parlors. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, wedding Ricardo's pizza parlor. You know, Ricardo's pizza yeah. parlor. Yeah. Where was that? <laughs> I don't remember anything about. it. I just know it was here. Pl places <laughs> just to, just to make noise to people to make people. You but know. like at the beginning, like because he it, it evolved and sort of it has this. You guys sound like the Doobie Brothers, but in the beginning, did you uh, like how? What was the uh, what were the what was the sound when you first started? Were you harder or less? Or? What is the target sound? Well, I mean, like uh, I would say, you know, it was always kind of who we are. Oh really. yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, it was we all, had we diverse rocking, musical you know. background, not real diverse, but I yeah. mean, sort of diverse. Yeah. Pat does a lot of finger picking. Yeah. And he was with a band called Scratch, and they were really, really good. Uh, was that like a country folk uh, place? Uh, it was just an oddball, you know, yeah. eclectic thing. Yeah. Bass player, drummer, violin player. Okay. Know, yeah. Odd, odd and I thing. came from like R&B and rock and roll. And All right. Uh, so it starts to mix up. You stick all that together and yeah. that's what you get. Were you guys going to shows back then? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Who'd sure. you see? I used to, well, I was still living in Vice City. Yeah. I would drive up for the weekend and crash at my sister's pad in uh, Santa Clara and I would yeah. go hang out in the hate all day long. Yeah. And... Uh, 
I saw Albert King. Oh, yeah. I was there for Cream. A little incident prevented me from seeing that. But well, yeah, um, what was that? That sounds like a good story. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, it was. The acid incident? What was the incident? <laughs> no, it wasn't that. I got kicked out. But it was uh, of the Fillmore. Yeah. Um, I saw Butterfield there a lot. I saw... You know, Jefferson Airplane would play, The Dead would play. Well, so all that stuff's going on. I can't, like, every time I talk to dudes who have lived through that, I, I, I would think that those kind of things stick in your head forever, some of those shows. They were uh, they were pretty amazing, especially at that age. I mean, I was, how old was I, 18, I guess? Yeah. And uh, very impressionable. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that kind of stuff. If you were in the hate at that age, time and it was another universe man it was crazy it w- was it like did it feel fun i enjoyed it yeah because i mean it did kind of go bad at some point right about a year later <laughs> it only lasted for a year i mean as far as the summer i love yeah yeah and then it w- and then speed hit and ruined everything is that the story that was the story i didn't i wasn't around to watch that but yeah. that's what i heard did you know any of those grateful dead guys i didn't really know them well i used to, oddly enough i just met and spoke with bob weir a little bit last year oh really that's the first time I'd ever really spoken to him and I, Jerry I'd run into a couple of times yeah. he played with another friend of mine uh, Merle Saunders who was an well, organ player and stuff but uh, I didn't really know any of them really well because they were over in the Bay Area too right Palo Alto area way back like Jerry was that's when he was doing started, folk music Palo yeah. Alto. Yeah. it's all from that same area yeah. alright so what happens how do you get the record deal actually we can sort of sort of thank Skip um, Skip he, Spence yeah he got us into a studio in San Mateo and we just went up there and cut some demos of songs we'd written and that was it well, well t- they tell t- us we got signed on the strength of that t- I don't know if t- I t- Templeman uh, was a uh, working for, in the A&R department he had gotten a gig uh, as a listener uh, uh-huh. doing various odd jobs you know around that was his first position yeah yeah I, he wrote a little biography recently that's really a good read uh, that about, of him about mm-hmm. yeah about his life, and um, so he was he was working there. Uh, he had been in a band called Harper's Bazaar, mm. and uh, they had done a rec of couple records, I guess, for Warner's. And then he kind of uh, went to work for Lenny Warnker. Lenny, yeah, Lenny was a producer there, and had I've heard produced, that name. He's he, like a big producer, right? For years, he ended up as, as yeah. I don't as know a, how active he is at this point. He's still around. Oh yeah, yeah. He, Lenny Warnker. Yeah, it produced. You know, got James Taylor. He yeah. produced all the Gordon Lightfoot sure. stuff, all the big, big hits. And it's stuff. weird about Gordon Lightfoot. I was thinking about him the other day. Like, if I could read your mind, like if that was the only song he wrote, it would be enough. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Lenny, a great song. I really, think, you can I think Lenny produced that. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> yeah, uh, but anyway, um, yeah. so Teddy was, you know, just li- kind of. They would uh, people would send in demos, and he had a big pile, and they put them on his, uh, you know, his in his box. He would go pick them up and then go into the office and sit there and listen to tapes. And uh, he heard our tape, uh-huh. and uh, according to, you know, his description, he listened to hundreds of tapes. Yeah. And, very little was you it know, popped impressed huh? him and he liked what he heard so he went to the uh the big guys and they said uh yeah we like that too and so lenny and teddy uh, it was kind of one of his very first productions it may have been his first mm. production was our our record oh yeah and he did it in conjunction with with uh lenny and they produced that first and how'd that album. thing sell <laughs> not very Bupkis. well. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> I, like, I'm looking at the cover right now, and I don't think I've ever seen that record in my life. About See, ten, no, ten thousand copies, a, I think, initially. Is you know. that it? Great testament. Yeah. Like it. But actually, 10,000. I've seen all the other ones. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> well, you didn't see that for a reason. It didn't sell. 
Who's that? Like, like, look at you guys, man. You're the big guy in the front is Little John. So now you know what Little John looked like, at least back then. That's that dude. Is he still around? Yeah, he just, just passed just away. Passed, yeah. Uh, sorry. You guys all stayed in touch, all 90 of you, over the years? <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. You know, we tried. Much as possible. Yeah? yeah? Yeah. So, okay, so the first album goes, and it does what it does, and then you still get another shot. I guess that was the time. They, you had someone who believed in you. Ted was, yeah. That was uh, it. Warner's, I guess. You, because we started working on an, another album at Wally Hyder's in San Francisco with uh, some of the people that we were involved with even previous to getting involved on the first one. And yeah. And... We kind of weren't headed in the right direction, and I think we probably knew it. But uh, what that mean though? Well, that means that Warner's heard the stuff that we were into doing at that point, or not into, but we had yeah. created, and they weren't that excited. And so they set Ted back up, and that's when we really started working with Ted because the first one really was produced by Lenny. Like when you when 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 that happens though, like is it your sound? Is it the what are they looking for? Like because like you never Hits. hear. <laughs> that's it, though. That is it. I, I mean, they, they they stood behind bands more than a lot of labels did. They Warner were really did. good with yeah. bands, yeah. I, I think uh, initially, you know, uh, a, as you say, with uh, Lenny being more of a roots kind of yeah. folky-oriented guy, I think they were saw us that way, uh-huh. and that really wasn't who we were. We were wanted to be, you know, aspired to be a rock and roll band. Right. And um, so... Ted came in and he recognized, you know, the, what we were looking for, and right. he he felt the same way that we had more than just you know folk, right? Blues, you stuff going right? On. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, so we, you know, then then we really kind of blossomed. We ended up uh, our bass pair, player left, and we after uh, the first record, after the first record, yeah. And he then, knew success when he saw it. <laughs> 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 and and so we, uh, I I had a friend that I had been playing with prior to yeah. uh, working with him. That the first bass player was I went to high school with him. Really? Yeah. And so the guy who quit. The guy who quit. Yeah, you know? yeah. And then uh, so uh, Tyran Porter was the the guy who came in, and Tyran was a killer bass player. Really and he was good. with you for how many records? A lot. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. So eight, the eight ten records. So the second record, boom, you got hits. Yes, and we brought in another drummer also. A we, second drummer or a new drummer? Uh, uh, he My was concept. a guy that that we had known uh, from another band who uh, kind of got up to jam with us one night at uh, the club we were playing at, and we hired him to be a second drummer. Huh. Wow, so that's a big who like was uh, were you inspired by the Almond Brothers? Or yeah, that's something? what everybody wonders. You know, kind of. I don't think we thought about it that way so much as it sounded good. Yeah, I, well, it, to me, it always seems odd, but you know, but I guess it's uh, it's cool to have two drummers. Yeah, for, it was very for, powerful for me. It was I, I love the Almond Brothers. So yeah, speaking for that? myself, yeah, 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 I, yeah. I, I saw that and and like and the, the Dead concept. does it too. Right? Yeah. I, yeah, I can't think yeah. of too many other ones. Can you? No, as a matter of fact, I can't think of any. <laughs> Doesn't mean there isn't. I just no, haven't I, heard about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And with the big hit was which one on Jesus Just All Right? Was that the big uh, hit listen, on there? Listen to the music. Oh, yeah, listen to the music was the opening. Yeah. That's kind of what opened the door. And then hearing that on, at that time in my Volkswagen Beetle, yeah. driving down the road and hearing it on the radio, it's like, holy shit, we're on the fucking radio. Man. It's great. <laughs> it's great, right? Yeah, it was a big deal. It yeah. really was. And then that got followed up with, I think, the song you mentioned. And uh, maybe rocking down the highway. I'm not really sure what came out after that. I don't, oh yeah, rocking down the highway. That's right. Yeah, I, it's it's crazy. So this is a big record. It's so funny because I I once talked to Fogarty, 
and I asked him about production, but he, mm. I mean, they're a little before you guys, right? Yeah. So they were. Uh, it's funny because I said, well, well, how do you, because those, uh, those Credence songs, they held up, you know, in a weird way. If you listen to the records, it got, sure. they're very simple, but they hold up. They're catchy. Yeah, they're catchy, but Simplistic like they're and catchy, and clean, man. you know, yeah. the production. I said, what are you thinking of when he f- produced a, a record? He goes, I think about an AM speaker and a dashboard of a car. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've seen people mix that way, so yeah. I totally believe that. Like when you sing, you put that up front. When you play <laughs> guitar, you put that up front. Makes sense, right? Yeah, it does. But that was post what you guys, I mean, you guys did uh, pretty, uh, oh, Kind of a bigger production, but you know, that it got was, bigger as each album went on. Yeah. Not huge, but I mean, it, it got added the to the sound. It, yeah, to it was, you know, it was the tried. advent of FM radio. Sure. And, oh, that's right. And that's suddenly, right. That's ster- right. stereo sound yeah. became relevant. You know, people yeah. had stereophonic systems they listened to, and, and prior to that, it had been just basically mono. Oh yeah, the monaural. F- that's right, the FM radio trip. And you so, guys are right. So now you'd be driving in your car and you'd you'd be listening to that stereo. was a big deal. It was the Bay was Area. They kind of spawned all that basically. It was that's right. Yeah, and and it was Tom, a, whatever it was like Donahue and Dusty Streets and all that, those people, man. Well, it was the difference between hey these guys and what's going on, you guys. <laughs> hey, yeah, AM <man. laughs> radio was very, still uh, uh, certainly a, a prevalent format, but um, yeah. FM and and albums, you know. In other words, they right. when you your album came out, they played the whole album on the radio, and people bought more albums than they did singles. After a while, it that was had the been, shift. It had been the other way, you know. People were buying singles and not so much albums, and then suddenly people are buying albums and less less singles. Yeah. Um, did you guys think in terms of albums when you recorded? I mean, was that we thought th- in terms of songs? Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. But, but I, th- I think we were thinking in terms of, of it, we wanted every song to be, you know. As good as it could be. As good as it could be. So. Yeah. And when did you start a- adding guys? What, this one, what's this album, The Captain and Me, that was another big record, the third record. Same, mm-hmm. same lineup. Same lineup. Of guys. Yeah. Four guys. Yep. Five, 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 five guys. Five. Yeah. Two, oh, two, the drummers. two drummers. Yeah. yeah. Can't forget that. <laughs> we tried some synth stuff and everything. We kind of grew, you know, and, and also the touring thing had kind of started to blow oh, up. And China Grove, that was that was the one. That's the song that, like, I just remember pounding. It was ubiquitous <clears throat> when I was like, what year was that? 75? So 73. 73, so I was like yeah. 11, and it was like everywhere. Are you trying to make us feel better? Maybe? Yeah, a little bit. Because <laughs> 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 it's still going. But China Grove, that, like, when you came up with that song, you were sort of like, oh, fuck yeah. Because that guitar thing. You know, some people may hear that and say, the only song I ever wrote that I thought this is a single was Listen to Music. Really? China Grove, it's, yeah, it's a great rock tune. Yeah. Cool. But I didn't think it was you know, a single. It's like Long Train Run. I didn't think that was a single. Because it was. It was a jam. Yeah. And, um, when you when those songs you get them, well Don Landy I give credit for putting the echo on that yeah out it wasn't my idea yeah. and uh, it was a neat thing but he's I the producer he was the engineer oh yeah and uh, Teddy was great helping all of us on all songs yeah like, vocals drums harmonies all yeah of it, you know and uh, so the touring starts and that uh, when do you become like a huge act when do you know like holy shit. I, you know, it started in 72, but I'd say 73 is when we really started really, you know, we never saw home. <laughs> yeah? No, you were out all the time. And, and if you weren't out, you were in LA doing another album every and, year. And did you like it? 
Yeah, it was fun. I yeah. mean, it was kind of a blur, but it was fun. Really? Did yeah. you end up managing to have a family and whatnot? No. No. <laughs> no. no. Nah, at least I sure didn't. I yeah. No, and it's a little crazy for having a family. I guess. I mean, you know, guys do it. I mean, <laughs> I don't know how, heard they, of it. how they how they turn out, but uh, but yeah. So when does uh, when does things start to sort of shift? Like when? How come? Like on Stampede, that's when do you add Baxter, or why? What happens? <laughs> well, you know, it's been just you know, it's an, it's an ever evolving thing. It uh, we. We added the other drummer, and then the the guy that we added left. Oh, he decided so he back was, to one. Well, yeah, he it would it would have been one, but the day he left, yeah. we added another drummer. Okay, so because uh, we he was around, and we liked the he at, was a that, really good drummer. At as that well. point, we liked yeah the, the two drummers drum, yeah. and he sang yeah, and <laughs> yeah. so we had a friend that was a. A great drummer yeah. and a singer, which was really an, an additional thing. So that was Keith Knutson. Yeah. And he came in and took uh, Michael Hossack's place. Right. And uh, we continued on and uh, did, then went on to do- Stampede? Uh, what did we do? Uh, uh, what Were Once Vices Are Now Habits was the next record, oh, okay. I think, after uh, The Captain and Me. And then we went And on that's to, Blackwater. That's one that right. Blackwater on it, yeah. Was that the biggest one? At that time, or for you, at the up to that point, because I just like that single, or yeah, biggest uh, yeah, single. I don't know. They were all single. they were all pretty much, you know, I was a, sustaining. They had a lot of top ten records. But that was the first that number point. one. Then Jeff was not really a part of the band for a long time. He just would. He was a friend of ours. Yeah. Um, by virtue of of just hanging coming out around, you know, we had done a lot of touring with Steely Dan <clears throat> early on. Uh-huh. In our career, like, gosh, in 1971, yeah, we were out on the road with. Uh, here's the lineup: the Doobie. Let's see who opened. Uh, Marshall Tucker sure. opened the shows. Yeah, then we then Steely Dan played right yeah. after them. Then the Doobie Brothers, and then Savoy Brown, and that was the wow. that was the bill. And we traveled around doing you know eight or ten shows with that with that crew with that thing, and we'd go. We were driving on a um, Winnebago, Winnebago, <laughs> doing this tour. <laughs> Each with, band with had their own Winnebago, guys. or you're all. In I don't Winnebago. know how the other guys. So some of the guys flew. <laughs> no. yeah, well, some of the guys were yeah, in yeah, cars. But that's how you went. Uh, Savoy Brown was the headliner. They were the headliner. Yeah. Wow. Because well, eight, eight to ten shows that goes by pretty fast. Yeah. They had a. Uh, I love the song. Them, I like that tell, group. tell Mama. Oh, Tell Mama. Yeah. yeah well, that, no, they have some good. There's some good. That was kind of kind of a hit for them. They're British, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, there's there's Jim a couple, of, yeah, and they were yeah. great. They were a couple really good, good records, yeah. But that was a great show, you know. And that's where you met all those. guys. And so we met Steve, guys in Steely Dan, yeah. And then you know, right after that, they started having you know uh, uh, differences of opinion. What was a back uh, <laughs> back Jack do it do it again? Was yeah, yeah. A, was a first hit, and then really in the years. But anyway, um, we became friends with all those guys, and Jeff uh, just kind of stayed in touch and i had him in to play on a steel guitar on the captain and me okay the, yeah 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 that album and um so then he just would show up you know we'd be playing around town and and he would show up and come in we'd say yeah, you want to sit in on something so he'd come in and he'd play and then uh amazing guitar player yes he was incredible guitar yeah, player. yeah and it was kind of it was neat because you know 
uh, Moby Grape fans. Yeah. So you'd we be, have three guitar players. You'd be surprised players. at the legions of Moby Grape fans that blow your mind. <laughs> Suddenly have three guitar players like, yeah. like Moby Grape. Oh, okay. So we didn't know whether we were uh, yeah. the Allman Brothers or Moby Grape. You know? But you had three, <laughs> and the Moby Grape fans came around because they were just excited? No, I don't know about oh, that. Right. I'm just saying everybody, <laughs> even Michael McDonald was a fan of Moby Grape. Yeah. I mean, and I don't mean that that way it sounds, but I mean, it's just diverse kinds of musical styles that people have and they all know about Moby Grape. Well, I think well because I think that Moby Grape was like you know for for most mortals who you know most people who aren't civilian most civilians who aren't musicians like I think they really defined that fucking sound of that time. They did. Like you know and it all gets put on the dead and a couple other people and they kind of get lost. But you listen to that that big Moby Grape album. It's like holy that shit. That was it, man. That was I, I, everybody I knew played the grooves off that day. Yeah, man. I mean myself included, you know. Yeah, it was great. It was a great record. So so anyway, that yeah, was kind of Jeff. How, Jeff was that third guitar player that we. That's great, and he was around for a few records, huh? Uh, yeah, yeah. We uh, he would go on the road with us as well. Again, he wow. wasn't really a member of the band for a while, and then we went in to do Stampede. Yeah, and then we s- sort of brought him in made to it the official. fold. Yeah, and and he participated in ma- the making of that record, and then that was kind of. His advent into full t- as full full, time. Uh, full steely or full uh, doobie brother. Right mm-hmm. now, like you guys all managing, no one got uh, all fucked up on drugs and shit. Everybody did something. Some people did more than others. <laughs> just, how's that for big? <laughs> but but it didn't seem like uh, it, it wasn't a tragic band. It all seemed, you know what I mean. Like I don't remember dark stories about the Doobie Brothers. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, define dark. I guess I don't. You know, I I think any band. I don't care who it is. Yeah. that goes out on the road and it, there's a lot of different uh, personalities. Yeah, in sure. band, A lot of different sure. players. But when you're on the road all the time, yeah, there's a release that you need to seek someplace, man, to get. Yeah, because after a while, you don't have a home. In essence, you have a house someplace, but you yeah. don't. Right, that's your that's your home. Yeah, I guess and so. It, yeah, it gets a little nuts. And uh, now, did was there any major point where the band was about to fall apart? Well, in '75, I left the band not because I wanted to. I left the band because I had a bleeding ulcer, and I got shipped out to a hospital in L.A. to, to get over that. And that that caused a big. Which album rumor. was that? That after? was Stampede. After that was Stampede. the first tour for Stampede. Mm. I want to say. So you you know I, I was you a were out. Guy. I was out. For that tour, for sure, and yeah. I was out for God, I don't know a year, I guess. Oh, and God. Uh, then yeah. they brought Mike in to, or not they actually. Uh, Jeff called Mike. Yeah, they had been in Steely Dan together. Baxter, yeah, Mike McDonald. Yeah, and uh, brought him in to play keys and do backgrounds. And then it turns out he had this treasure trove. I should let him tell you this. I what? wasn't there. Treasure trove of songs, and uh, that's when. They ended up with the, with the album uh, "Take It to the Streets." Like, and that changed the whole sound in a way, didn't it? It did. And you guys still pals? He's in the board touring right with now. him. Yeah. How democratic is the thing? When did you come back? On which record did you come back on? I came back and toured on "Take It to the Streets" the okay. tour. Yeah. In the spring tour in '76, and we had a ball. We had a we had that Memphis horns out, and oh yeah, and everybody. It was just a great tour. It was so, a lot of fun. Like when that when somebody like Mike comes in, it changes the, the 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 dynamic of the band. But is there is it a democracy or who's leading the thing? I don't know if there ever was. Uh, you a know, real we never really. <laughs> in some sense, it really never has been structured that way. It's more uh, just a natural uh, 
evolvement of, yeah. of how of things stuff. go. Yeah, you know, we, yeah, the we phrase whatever works comes to mind. Yeah, yeah. And you just have a, like, you have good road managers and, you know, you guys just do what you do. Well, <laughs> we had some road managers. Yeah. <laughs> we burn out a number good, of bad, road managers. Good, bad, and otherwise, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the worst position for... It is why. Uh, they just, they're in the hot seat all the time, you know. And yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah. got to deal with all these different personalities. That's really hard. A yeah. hard gig. Yeah. yeah. And then, like, you did, like, which record, like, Minute by Minute was the, that was, I remember that record being everywhere. It was a big record. Was, the, was that the biggest one? I don't know. Yeah, it probably sold. I don't know what it sold, but I think it probably sold more than previous albums. Yeah. Most of our albums that were, you know, successful albums have sold probably equally, uh, uh, give or take. Yeah. More or less, you know. Uh, like, it, like a lot of them are like double platinum. What What happens is, you know, you, you get a certain record that gets played on the radio a lot and then boom, you sell a lot of records. And then over time, you know, people revisit the end and they, they go, well, I love that record, but I don't have this one and they'll buy that record. So suddenly, you know, your uh, Toulouse Street, yeah. which was arguably our first, you know, success, it was our first successful record. Uh, it sells yeah. quite a bit more. Oh, it's it funny how things... You know, when you get a, a new hit record, it kind of livens up the catalog. Our, we just put out a, Never an, al an album uh, <laughs> when? Last October. Last yeah. October, yes. Yeah. And suddenly uh, a couple of other albums were back on the charts. Really? Uh, yeah, just it's, you know, how that feeds that... And you guys just... And things are very different now as far as how things go with music well, that's sales sure. and all that. So that's... I think people pay. Uh, I think it's you a know, good I, thing. I know people in the in the music industry pay as much attention to the Apple chart or the you know the Amazon chart as they do to Billboard these days. That's yeah, just the way, certainly. The way yeah. it is because any it, streaming platforms. Yeah. And wait, like, but after like minute by minute, did you feel like was there like a period where I mean, you could always go out and play, I imagine, because you had such a great catalog. But was there a period there where you didn't feel like the records were doing as well, or that? We we never worried about that, no. you know. I mean, if there's a place you can play and people are going to come and see you, so it, most of it if was there's five hundred, right, five thousand, who go cares, you know? Yeah, and you could always sell tickets. Yeah, yeah. The, the band always sold tickets. I left the band in '77 and took off. Um, did a couple of solo albums. Um, How they do? First one did okay. The second yeah. one, I might as well not have bothered. But um, not because it wasn't good. They said. That sounds stupid if I say it. This is what I got told anyway. Yeah. It sounds too much like the Doobie Brothers. Yeah. I said, well, fuck, man, what do you want? <laughs> I'm a Doobie Brother. <laughs> At any rate, and then we all got back together for a benefit. Keith Knudsen sort of organized us all. Uh -huh. And uh, that was for the Vietnam Vets, and we did that at the Hollywood Bowl. And everybody that ever played in the band that was still breathing was on stage. No kidding. Just about, yeah. What year was that? That was 87. How many? How many people was that? <laughs> you got four drummers. You got four <laughs> guitar players. You got two keyboard players. That's only crazy. one bass player. But That's uh, crazy. yeah, Willie didn't. Join Fifteen me. or sixteen people, probably something. And like then that. we took that on the road for about ten shows or something. And then we went. Some of us went to Russia and played at that Glasnost thing. Oh yeah. And another couple of guys went off and did a a country album thing. And by the time 89 rolled around, we made another album, which was Cycles, and it just started everything up again, and we haven't quit since. Who was, who was uh, the members in Cycles? 
close to the same band that was on Toulouse Street, essentially. It was Pat and myself, Tyron, uh, John Hartman, and uh, Mike Cossack. Wild. So you just come full circle every time. Every It's sort of like in spirals. You just end up... How many it was, people? Uh, just something, something fun, you know, to kind of revisit that. And when you make records now, like I mean, how? What's the process of of writing and everything? Is it the same as it ever was, or do you just do it because you can, or do, do you like still write? Like <clears> making I would new say music? the most recent one we did that Pat referred to, which is called Liberté. Liberté, yeah, um, is probably the most different uh, way of going about writing that we've ever done. Uh, yeah. In essence, every song was co-written. Okay. It used to be that everybody wrote their own songs and everybody would come in and come up with parts and stuff. But uh, this was all co-written with, with John Shanks. And huh. he produced it. Yeah. And we uh, and it was done really rapidly. Yeah. Not not in a bad way. I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just a whole new way of doing things. Do you like the record? I do. I thought it was I thought it came out pretty good. Um Nowadays, records are kind of who who told me this? They're like posters for tours. Unless they, unless you're blowing up really huge and right. a gigantic one but I mean it's like it used to be that the tour was to you know pump the record and get everybody out buying and stuff now the record is to pump the tour so right, right. 180 degree change right interesting up. so the tour you'd make money but it was primarily to sell the record in the old days yeah yes. yeah who were like your opening acts as you kind of evolved that have gone we on we kind of were all over the map oh yeah yeah Huey Lewis oh yeah um, T-Rex <laughs> Really? <laughs> when did um, you tour T Rex? Seventy two. Really? Yeah. How was that? It was interesting. <laughs> Talk about so that bands your... that were different from each other, but we learned something from it. What'd you learn from them? Well, it was a different style of music. It was sure. called glam rock, I yeah, guess yeah, is sure. the name for it. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. we were more of a We got more glamorous. Yeah. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> we started dressing a little wilder. Really? Uh, Gotta do something with our hair, fellas. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> no glitter on the face or anything like yeah. that. Yeah. But uh, they were fun to hang out with. They're good guys. Yeah. yeah. It's sad that guy died so young. So, so I started to say who, yeah, you know, who, yeah. who grew to yeah. get really big that opened for us. Huey, Huey yeah, was sure. one. Uh, Leonard Skinner opened. Well, that uh, seems shows to be the time. Us. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Do you like those guys? Yeah. Steely Dan opened for us. Sure. Kev Mo opened Kev for Mo, us. Kev Mo, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you probably don't even remember that. Do you remember <laughs> Kev Mo opening for us? I don't remember Kev Mo. All by, him, all by himself. <laughs> Just with went his out guitar, there. And That's he was why like, I, we, I remember playing with him at the we went, oh and May my, thing, but oh I don't my remember. Oh, my God. That. You know, he was like so good. Yeah, yeah. Who is this guy? And I don't even think he had a record yet. Wow. Did you do a lot of those stadium things with the nine bands, ten bands, like those huge? Oh yeah, oh yeah, sure. Those were like I went to one. I don't think you were on it though. I went to one up in uh, Mile High Stadium. I think it was like the Cars, Ted Nugent, UFO, the Rockets, <laughs> and Heart. So that would have been a little pretty later. wild combo. That's that up tempo. I mean, not not oh, the, the Cars. Energy wise, Cars opened for us. It was hard to follow some of the bands, to be honest with you. I bet because is that, is they were little they feet. Were, well, that following makes, Little Feet was not they, great, they had, or Tower of Power, or somebody like that. Hits, Tower of Power is a lot of those guys powerful. Had, those bands yeah. had had hits that were you know pretty monumental, even at that time. Yeah, as a uh, uh, foreigner, you know. Sure. Uh, yeah, we sure. did a whole year cold, with foreigner. Cold as ice, you know, when that first song came. They out. were opening you know, they for were, you on their first tour, like? yeah, and it, you know, Heart. Yeah, uh, you know, big songs that uh, they're opening for us, and we didn't really, you know, maybe we had some hits at that time i don't know sure but, he did but um you know there were big bands so did, you know you're you, you know but, but like were you guys backstage going ah fuck 
Oh, gotta, yeah. <laughs> how are we going to do? You better get out there. <laughs> you gotta, we got to rock. You've heard about the, the, the riot house, right? You know all about that. What's that? The, the Hyatt the, House. Yeah, the Hyatt, sure. Yeah, it's right well, next to the Well, just think store. of that on the road. Yeah, that's it? <laughs> In those night? days? Yeah, that's the way it was? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's crazy. What about, like, did you ever, like, did you ever do his shows, like, with Zeppelin or anything? I don't know. Not we, while I was in there. We played with the Stones. Oh, um, yeah? What, at, like, a big thing, the Stones? Yeah. Was that fun? Most, that's, when, you, when you hear big names like that, generally it's a large venue. Sure, I mean, it's yeah, 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 place. yeah, huge. But that's so, it's so wild that, like, you know, that I can't imagine what it'd be like to be backstage waiting to go on and just see somebody, like, just blow the place up. You're like, let's just give it an hour. Let's just take a rest, <laughs> clean the palate, and let them wait for me. <laughs> <laughs> Did you change your set list ever to to to, to sort of follow people? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, we better move All the up. power stuff would end up front. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Better open up with China Grove. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and a few others I can think of, yeah. Like, what are the other ones that you'd be like, fuck oh, without you. Yeah. And, uh, move those closers up top. That's right. <laughs> Did it work generally? It helps. It helps, yeah. <laughs> At least it wasn't a big drop-off when you got out on the stage. You didn't want that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. So, what now, who's in? Who's touring now? Who's in the band now? Like, who's the, who's the gang? Mike's with you. Myself, you guys, Tom, yeah, Mike. Two of the, you guys are the only. John McPhee. Yeah, we're the only original original. Yeah. John, but, you know, John was with us from what? 80, what? 79? Well, John, is that when he came in? John uh, joined in 78. Yeah. 78, okay. And then played with us until we kind of went on hiatus around 82, 83. And then when we got back together in. Uh, 89, we went on for a couple of years, and I think John came in around the early 90s. Yeah. Yeah. 93, And he's been with us ever since. And what and what are the... So how how are the audiences? What kind of rooms are you playing? What's this? We're uh, playing uh, mostly, you know, sheds, what they call sheds, like 25,000 people. 25,000? Yeah. That's a lot. Well, not... Uh, yeah. Not every night. I mean, some... And we're also playing arenas. I mean, I would say... Some are 10,000, some are 15. Some wait, 25,000? Yeah, not that many. Not every night, but oh, yeah, that's called a shed. That's the name they use. Yeah. Well, what what it is is they're in, you know, they're uh, amphitheaters, indoor outdoor amphitheaters. Oh, I see. Okay. Uh, all right. So you like uh, some of them are. Oh yeah. Okay. I get it. So you I got the yeah. first part is covered, and then I it's get open. It. Yeah, long. yeah, yeah. That's a lot. And and how how who you bringing? Who's opening for you now? Uh, no one. No one. We're no, just we're, we're playing two and a half hours. So, really? Yeah. And what's the crowds like? They've been Good. great. Good yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and you've got the whole spectrum of this band. You know, yeah. you've got from almost the front end, maybe not. A, there's one song off that first album. After that, that's gone. But uh, it's like every album is kind of represented from that period all the way through Michael's period, and Michael's playing on everything, singing on everything, and we're playing on everything that he did. Yeah, and it's like, and it works. Yeah, and, and works. I guess like uh, you see in multi generations audience, like oh, you yeah, know, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you see some kids, you see some yeah, about grandparents, and yeah. you see some grandparents. Three, yeah, three generations. So wow, isn't unusual, really. Do you have a uh, take time off? Do you have fun and shit. We're not touring like we did back in the seventies. Let's put it that way. Sure. <laughs> so you guys, we do. just we've been off for five months right now, but that was this due is due to a lot of this stuff. This is a pretty intensive uh, touring schedule. Yeah, this, this time around, um, simply because we. You know, been uh, we had to postpone a lot of shows sure, during this sure. pa- pandemic. Yeah, the COVID so, thing messed everything up. So we're back to you know, re- yeah. re- revisiting those venues and and 
Yeah, and how's the? Uh, you have a nicer Winnebago now, or? <laughs> Matter of fact, now that you mention it, yeah, <laughs> it's even longer. <laughs> Big bus. Big bus. Is that how you do it? The bus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're busing. And uh, what kind of guitars are you playing? Uh, well, I've got kind of these put together uh, Stratocasters mostly. That, yeah, that I'm playing. Yeah, from parts from Schecter from parts. Par- or, parts. Or, yeah, yeah, parts guitars. You got a guy that does that for you? Uh, yeah. Well, I've been playing these guitars that uh, uh, actually my old tech back in the '70s yeah. built three guitars for me, and I'm still playing them. Really? And my present tech also is a guitar builder i'm playing a couple of his guitars oh that's cool so they're all you know really hand handmade guitars you like but, that strat sound uh, but i like the strat sound you know what about you what are you playing uh i was a gibson guy for the longest time yeah. any model you know every shape and size yeah. and um uh, played les pauls and sgs sure and did you uh, have one of those triple pickup les pauls no none of those never even wanted one good for some reason, I associated that with the Platters, and somehow, and much as I thought they were a great singing group, I just didn't want. And the chick used to play a, a triple pickup one. Yeah, who well, Frampton played one. He the, does uh, the yeah. black triple the, pickup the West Ball. Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wait, so you just a, what I'm kind? a PRS guy now. That's pretty much all I play. Oh yeah, yeah. What'd you do with all your Gibsons? Got them in a. Some of them are still around. I've still got the one I cut. Listen to music with, and I played that thing for years on the road. It's still with me. What about uh, China Grove? Who's that at the beginning of that? <clears throat> Yeah. Um, that was on an SG, and um, you like those P90s? I like P90s. I like really dirty. P90s are on the Les Paul, yeah, 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 yeah. Those but I also like Firebirds, and that was another great guitar. I know, With really the... great. And you look around if you look through pictures <laughs> of people, even you see, I don't care if you're on, yeah, uh, Instagram or something, you'll find a lot of people playing those. They're it's... back with the mini Hupbuckers. Some are, yeah. I, I got turned on to them by Johnny Winters. He was like oh, yeah. all about those, and. Uh, and I actually had one that I got from Johnny Winters. Oh, it got, yeah? Unfortunately, it got stolen. It was a great guitar. Damn. Yeah, I had it for years. Was it uh, one of the wood ones? They made some white ones that are kind of cool. Was it one of just This the was the wood straight? tone, yeah. Cause he With like, those small pickups you mentioned. So he went into, uh, Johnny just ended up like doing a lot of acoustic blues, like that steel guitar stuff, right? Like Dobro shit later on. He might have. I, yeah. I kind of missed out on that. Oh, yeah? Yeah. He was, he's, he's a good player. He was a killer player. He was wild the way he, he was wild too. Yeah. But he was also yeah. he was a wild killer player. Yeah. He was so this uh, so the book goes all through the stuff and all through the the whole career ends up where we <clears throat> where we ended up today, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Are you happy with it? I I am. Yeah. yeah. We had fun doing it. It was uh, we, had, you know, <clears throat> we didn't anticipate having to write quite as much. You know, oh, yeah. we ended up having to go <laughs> in and rewrite. Yeah. Do and, some homework. Uh, well, just not you know, on you the would, last one, but uh, I would I would read was. things. You know, we kind of tell the story to Chris, and yeah. then he would help oh, us put it together. Book. Yeah, the book. Yeah, I would read it and I'd go, "Well, that's not exactly the story." Yeah. number one, and that's not the way I would have said. It. So then I would go in and you oh, know, you're on top of it. Yeah, just yeah. Re- rewrite we pretty much everything, and then yeah. send it to him, and he go, "Well, that's that works." And then you know, there was a little fun. filter that it went through. And it's, you nah, guys, nah. yeah. But more than anything, the NAF filter. More than anything, he he was a great catalyst sure. for remembering things. Yeah, and uh, very helpful in that. You know, get just getting the ball moving. Sure, and, and he did write. You know, help us write 
some of the stories and stuff. Sure. What's the high point? Do you think when when you look at this book? When you, what was the, the the well, you got in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That must have been amazing. That was uh, it was. You know, it would have been even more point, amazing yeah. if we could have been there to play live like everybody else got to do. <laughs> you didn't get you? No, because of COVID, nobody could do it. Uh, oh, it was just this last year. Twenty twenty is when we it were, happened. Uh, so. Oh, they got they got to bring you back. I agree. What would you play? I, something good. <laughs> I don't know, man. <laughs> something gets a reaction. You got to open strong there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you follow the whole history of rock and roll. We did a virtual version. We did it all. Uh, uh, we didn't zoom it or anything, but I yeah. mean, we did tape, not tape, but you know. Yeah, sure. Recorded stuff yeah, at the yeah. houses, and and yeah, it's, I would love to go back and play. I think that'd be awesome. Should, I I wonder how many people didn't get to play. They should have them back. Everybody that was nominated. Everybody was nominated. That was, yeah, yeah. For two years or just the one year? Just the one year. Just the one year. Yeah, they started up again the next year. All right, fellas. Well, I, I hope the book sells and have fun on the road. Thank yeah. you. It's good talking to you, man. Wow, Likewise. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for taking it. the yeah. time. There you go. What a show. What a music show. Long Train Running, Our Story of the Doobie Brothers is now available wherever you get books. It keeps you running. It keeps you running. Give me the beat, boy. And my soul and you want to get lost in your ride. Down out. Oh, black water, keep on rolling, Mississippi moon, keep on shining on me. By the hand, hand, take me by the hand. Hey, mama, go down, but the bad and blow. Not long, but the beep, my boom, boom, stink, and pam, pam, boom, we dee, pop, boop, we pee, boo. Around, round, down, pook it up, but then, baby, Boomer lives. Monkey, LaFonda. Cat angels everywhere. Bound out, chicka, pick it down out, chicka, pick it down, pick it down, pick it down.